Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you again for this opportunity that we have to take in your word. Thank you, Lord, for the cross of Christ in which our sins were judged. The penalty was paid for, Father. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that our Savior bore our transgressions and was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation he provides, eternal life by faith. Father, we pray that we might continue to grow in your grace as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that one day we will be resurrected and we will be conformed to the image of his Son. We look forward to that day of resurrection. Help us, Lord, in the meantime to continue to express hope and confidence in you and your word. And help us to take in your word by faith this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 28. John chapter 5, verse 28. And uh, we're going to read down through verse 30. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation let's we'll stop right there verse 29 now here uh the author of john begins with this uh the the fact that the son of god has authority to resurrect the dead and that's what verse 28 is all about but before that if we go back to verse 22 in John chapter 5, we see the Son has authority in other areas. The Son has authority to execute all judgment. In verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And then in verse 27, the prior verse to this passage in verse 28, he has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man so think about all future judgment is given over to the son to execute and that's pretty sobering that one day you're going to stand before that judge now for believers uh it won't be our sins that will be judged our works will be evaluated at the judgment seat of christ but the future judgments individuals will stand before the son the son has authority to give eternal life Not only does he have authority to judge, he has authority to give eternal life to those who believe in him. And therefore, uh, he says that um, in verse 24, Verily, verily say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And therefore, he has the authority to give eternal life to all who place their faith in him. And then in their current text, he has authority to give all to all resurrection life. Now, he will make a clear distinction between the resurrection of the lost and the resurrection of saved individuals. And there's a very clear distinction between the two categories here. But he will give resurrected life to all. All who are in the graves will hear his voice. All who have died will be resurrected. Now, verse 25, uh, Jesus combines the idea of spiritual resurrection and physical resurrection in this passage. When we see both aspects of resurrection, um, by the way, when we look at um, verse 25, let's look at John 5.25 before we look at John 11. John 5.25, the one who has believed in him will has passed from death to life. We saw that that spiritual life and spiritual death in that passage. And then verse 25 says, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now in that context, who are the dead? The dead there refers to unsaved individuals who hear about the gospel. And therefore the light there is eternal life in verse 25. But in the text we read in verse 28, the ones who hear... these individuals are in the grave he makes a distinction between the ones who hear in verse 25 the dead will hear spiritually dead in verse 28 those who have died are the physical dead in john 5 28 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Now, both are combined in this passage in verse 25 and 26. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, how can we die and never die? So what aspects of death and life is referring to here? Now, I think this translation really clarifies it. Uh, Bob Wilkin, uh, in his book, adds this. His book, The Ten Most Understood, Misunderstood Words in the Bible. He says this, as the resurrection, he guarantees a resurrect physically all who believe in him. He who believes in me, though may, they may die physically, he shall live physically. So that verse 25 refers to physical death. But he's also the resurrection life to give life to those who are spiritually dead. Verse 26, as the life he guarantees the ones who believes in him is eternal, eternally secure. Whoever lives and believes in me, that's a requirement, those individuals shall never die spiritually. So he's not talking about physical. We may have eternal life, but we would die physically, right? But he's talking about spiritual death. So we have to distinguish between the two aspects of death here. One is physical death, and the other is spiritual death. Certainly God is able to give life to those who are spiritually dead by believing the gospel. But one day he will give life to those who are physically dead by resurrecting them. So both of those aspects of death and life are combined there in John 11, 25 and 26, also in our current passage. So I want to make that clear distinction there. So do not marvel at this. Do not be amazed for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Here he adds in the graves, whereas in verse 25, he simply says the dead hear hear the voice. And I think in verse 25, he's referring to those who are spiritually dead. Here, though, those who hear are in the graves. These are those who are physically dead, physically dead in this passage. Now, they will hear the voice of the Son. Now, we know as far as uh, in, even in Jesus' ministry, he resurrected or we could say resuscitated an individual who was dead. Now, the reason why I say technically resuscitation because I define a resurrection as someone coming back to life never to die again. So Lazarus died again. Uh, so that's the resurrection. But he resuscitated Lazarus, in a sense, as a precursor to his ultimately raising the dead uh, at his coming. And let's take a look at John 11, verse 43, in the account of the resurrection or resuscitation of Lazarus. In John 11, verse 43, Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come forth, he cried out and commanded, Lazarus, come come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. So Lazarus was physically dead. But Jesus cried out with his voice, Lazarus, come forth. That individual who was physically dead heard that command of the Lord Jesus Christ and came out of the grave. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for the, ch- from the, uh, for the church, we will hear a similar command. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 15. This passage, normally the rapture passage, we're familiar with this text. He says in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who have died for the lord himself will descend from heaven with a what shout with a shout and as i'll tell you a funny story that penny told me uh, emily said something to penny she was talking about you know the resur- or the resurrection coming uh, resurrection or rapture of believers and the lord will come with a shout and she said, oh, we're not allowed to shout. 
It's, it'll be okay for the Lord to do that, right? It'll be okay for the Lord to shout. So it's interesting what kids pick up on. We're not allowed to shout. So the Lord will give a shout, right? He will give it a command. And I heard one writer said he will say, um, you know, if he did during Lazarus Day, just simply said the word come forth, all who were in the graves would come forth. And that's why he said Lazarus come forth. So one day he will probably come and say, all church age believers come forth. And uh, that will be a command. I think his shout is the idea of commanding the dead to come out of the graves. And certainly one day we will hear, if we have died, his voice in that shout. Now, we look at this difficult passage in John 5.29, which at first glance, if you read it without understanding uh, the rest of the Word of God, you can easily take it to be a salvation by works passage, and certainly it is not. Um, He says, those who will come forth are those who have done good. There's two categories who will hear his voice. Those who have done good, they will come forth to the resurrection of life. Second category of those resurrected, and I gave say category, it's very important, classification, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now you look at that and thinking, well, you know, this is teaching salvation by works. You've got to do good in order to be resurrected. Uh, and if you've done evil, bad things, you'll experience condemnation. But we have to see what he's saying here. I don't think his passage is teaching salvation by works. Because earlier in John, he based the salvation based on faith alone. It's not based on anything good that we do. Uh, Jesus even command, said that, uh, by the way, on several occasions. There's no, no one who is good but God. And therefore, he's, he's making a simple description here. We'll uh, delve into it further. But those who come forth are those who will literally, this word here, ek uh, peruomai, uh, it comes from the Greek word ek is out and peruomai to go. So literally to go out. It's used of individuals leaving a city to go out of a city. Here though, the location of going out is the grave. Uh, those individuals will come forth. I think that's a good translation. They will go out or come out of the grave. In Matthew 20, 29, the word is used of going out of a city. We want to look at that reference, but the idea is to come out. And therefore, at the command of Jesus, there'll be those at the resurrection day will come forth and go out, come out of the graves. We also have the word for resurrection. And the word for resurrection, typical word, is anastasis. And the idea of ana, once again, a preposition meaning up. If you could memorize the 17 Greek prepositions, we had to memorize the prepositions and their meanings, you'll have a great handle on Greek vocabulary. And so a lot of uh, Greek is built on these prepositions. So you have the word ana meaning up, and histomy to cause to stand. So literally a resurrection is a standing up, a standing up, rising up. So think about those who are in the graves will come out. They will come out of the grave and they will be resurrected. They will rise up. They will stand up. And one more interesting term for those who are alive, of course, we won't come out of the graves if we Christ returns for the church. We will be caught up, caught up with him. And therefore, the term used for rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is the word harpazo means to snatch or to catch away. We could say catch up or caught up. So those who have died, they will come up or come out of the grave. They will stand up, rise up, and believers, of course, will be caught up to be with the Lord. Very important distinctions here and what will occur when Jesus returns. And certainly those who are in the graves will be resurrected. Now, those who have done good. Now, obviously, when we study the Word of God, we look at the book of Romans, there's, there are none who, who has done good as far as, you know, all have fallen short in God, of God's glory. Let's take a look at a couple passages in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 16 and 17. We have the, uh, the uh, witness to the rich young ruler... 
And this rich young ruler approached Jesus and called him good teacher. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I, that I may have eternal life? And he may have been thinking about salvation by work. What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now I think there's a twofold thing going on there. I think there's an aspect of reward that he deals with, with this rich young ruler. But here he says, uh, What good thing must I do to have eternal life? Notice what Jesus said in verse 17. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. No one is good that one is God. I think he's trying to you know, to catch his attention. Who do you think I am? See, I'm God. You're calling me good teacher, but there's none good but God. Then who am I? I'm God. I'm God. I think he's approaching him with pre-evangelism, showing his need to place his faith in him. Now, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. Romans 3, verse 10 through 12. We read the Apostle Paul, and he says that God, as a judge, looks at the whole human race as all under sin. In verse 9. In verse 10, he says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have become together unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. God's evaluation is there is none who does good in God's eyes and is acceptable by works. By works. Now, don't get me wrong. The unsaved can do good deeds, but they cannot do things that please God. All right? Those works are as filthy rags in God's sight. They are not acceptable to God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now, who can do good, though, are believers after they're born again. After they were born again. We had the capacity for the first time because of the new creation in Christ Jesus to do good works. Ephesians 2.10. So in Ephesians 2.10, he says, well, let's go back to verse 8 and 9 because I think it's very important to once again establish we're not saved by our good works. So let's read this passage. Ephesians 2.8. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is simply an instrument or a conduit to receive God's grace. Some have described it as a grace pipeline, uh, you know, pipeline from God to you, and you receive God's grace simple by simple faith. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, meaning the salvation package is God's gift. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So it's very clear. Our justification is not by works. Now, verse 10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Works come into play, but only after we're born again. That's very important. And what this is saying is, God has given now us a capacity for the first time because of that new creation in us to do good works. Whereas prior, our good works was not, not acceptable to God. We've all fallen short. But now that we're born again, we have the capacity to walk in good works. We have the capacity to manifest fruit that pleases God. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared that we not would walk in them, but that we should walk in them. Certainly God wants us as believers to walk in good works. So, Basically, what I think he's doing is those who have done good, I think a couple things have, uh, he's saying about the category of individuals, believers. They have done good because they believe the gospel, first and foremost. Uh, secondly, they have done good because now they are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And therefore, they are considered as in that category. He doesn't mix good and evil at this point. He simply says those who have done good. And therefore, he's not saying that that's how they are saved, but simply it's a descriptive thing of believers here, those who have done good works. Only believers, therefore, have the capacity to do divine good by the power of the Holy Spirit. And only the Holy Spirit can produce works that are pleasing to God. Uh, once again, if, uh, Hebrews 11, without faith is impossible to please him. 
Hebrews 11.6. We cannot please God apart from faith. So the unsaved person cannot do things that please God. And therefore, he's descriptive of believers. Now, I'm going to uh, give you an extended quote. Uh, Zane Hodges dealt with this difficult passage in Dallas Theological Seminary publication called Bibsack. He wrote an article on this passage in John 5.29 and dealt with this. And I'm going to read several thing, lines from Zane Hodges here. He says this, Of course, no one knows better than the Apostle John that believers in this life are by no means free from sin. <laughs> That's so true, 1 John 1.8. But of course, strictly speaking, John 5, 28 and 29 views men from the vantage point of the world to come. Those whom the Lord Jesus Christ calls forth from their graves to share in the resurrection of life are seen simply as people who have done good. They are not viewed as individuals in whom an admixture of good and evil has existed during all their earthly career, but rather as doers of good, nothing more and nothing less. Now, how can this be? That's the question. How can this be? For all who are acquainted with Pauline theology, the answer lies ready at hand. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? In Romans 8. It is God that justifies. Think about that. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ who died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. In Romans 8, 33 and 34. If the question is asked as to how God can completely bypass judgment for the believer in Jesus, since he does not come into judgment, John 5, 24, the answer must be that God has no charge against him. The believer is justified from all things on the basis of his faith. Think about that. How God views, views us as justified in his sight by faith. Now, we see then that in John 5.29, it is a description of what only the saved can do. As Romans, Paul teaches in Romans 8.8, 8, the works of the unbeliever stem from the flesh. And it is impossible for good works to be produced by the Holy Spirit, since he does not indwell the unbeliever, as um, Michael Housley states, saying the similar thing to Zane Hodges. Now, Zane, Michael continues to say to this, we may summarize our look at John 5, 28 and 29 by noting what the verses do not say. It's very important to ask what the verses do not say. Many readers assume that the verses are saying that those who have done good will be raised to life because they have done good deeds. And that those who are raised to be condemned will be raised because they have done bad. But Jesus is not speaking of how a person is saved. He is describing those who have been saved. This text is not prescriptive. That is, Jesus is not talking about the method of salvation. He is describing those who have been born again. The unbeliever, Hodges states this, is in the sphere of death and destined for the resurrection of judgment. Only evil things are predicated of him. What about those who have done evil? Nice commenting on that. By way of absolute contrast, a believer is still in the sphere of life to which he has passed by hearing the voice of the God's Son, and is destined for the resurrection of life. Only good things are predicated of him. Again, there is no shading in these comparisons. Only the unsaved, they die in their sins, by the way. The unsaved are viewed as doing evil. That characterizes their entire life. Individuals who remain uh, in rebellion against God. Hodges states this, Those who participate in the resurrection of judgment are those of whom it can only be posited that they have done evil things, and evil things only. There is not, no scrap of genuine righteousness by which they may be commended to their judge. Instead, their condemnation is total. Total. Now, think about this. In Romans 4, 8, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. We dealt with that in our first hour, by the way. David. It's written by David after he committed adultery and murder of Bathsheba. And he wrote these words, speaking of justification by faith. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Isn't that amazing how God views us now that we're in Christ Jesus? 
An example of this, by the way, of the nation of Israel, and this is astounding, by the way, look at Numbers 23, when Balaam tried to curse Israel. Numbers chapter 23, verse 21. <clears throat> Notice here, um, Balak took up an oracle when he was mouthing the words of God. He said, Behold, I have received a command to bless. He hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not observed iniquity in Jacob. Wasn't it there? Oh, yeah. But he has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. I think ultimately a messianic prophecy of Christ. But viewing Israel tried to curse God's people whom they blessed. And certainly from a human perspective, the children of Israel were not without sin, obviously. But this is divine perspective and how God viewed them. Now, the resurrection of light, that phrase is um, uh, Anastasis Zoes, uh, resurrected life. A resurrection of life. Now we have a genitive. We have the of, by the way, translates the genitive here, construction. So we have the resurrection of life. We have the genitive construction. And this can mean that life modifies or defines resurrection. We could say this is life-giving resurrection. That's what resurrection does. It gives life. This, this aspect of it for those who have believed, those who are characterized as good. The resurrection leads to fullness of life without need of judgment. That's the idea. The resurrection leads to fullness of life. And that's why it's called a resurrection of life. It's fullness of life without need of judgment. We know in John 5.24, the believer will not come into future judgment. And therefore, they'll be resurrected to a new quality of life. We're going to deal with, therefore, the quality of our resurrected life now keep in mind he's not listing the whole entire resurrection program only in the sense of summarizing it it's a brief summary here he's not saying okay we're going to deal with the resurrection of believers at the rapture we're now going to deal with tribulation saints resurrection we're going to deal with old testament saints resurrection we're going to deal with the great white throne judgment he's simply summarizing the fact that one day christ will raise all the dead and basically you can classify all those future resurrections into two classes. That's what he's doing. All those future resurrections are two, basically categorized in two classes. Resurrection of life versus resurrection of condemnation. Those are the two categories. We're going to look at what resurrections fall under the first category. And then the second, uh, the latter category. So there are two basic here classes or categories of resurrections. Now, what will that resurrection of life be like for believers? Well, we will enjoy eternity in a new Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And it's called a resurrection of life because not only is your body raised to life, but it's an entire experience. It's not simply the fact that you're going to live because the unsaved person will live, but they will have a different experience. For the believer, it will be the fullness of life coming out of the grave and experiencing all the enjoyment and bliss of eternity with God. And therefore, we begin in Revelation 21, verse 2, with the creation of the new heavens and new earth. And we have that celestial city described in the last two chapters of the Bible. Verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Think about The city itself is beautiful. The bride herself will be in that city, the church, but the city itself is called a bride because it's beautiful. This bride is prepared. And we think about the words of Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you. He's building that new Jerusalem. And so when you are resurrected, you will receive a, a body that will have the capacity to enjoy 
the bliss of heaven forever, the new Jerusalem, and all that entails, by the way. Notice verse 3, that includes eternal fellowship with the holy God, that resurrection of life. Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. To sum up what he's saying there is, I think he's referring to eternal communion with the Holy God. You remember what Adam and Eve, Adam had before the fall? Adam walked with God every day in fellowship before sin entered the picture. And sin disrupted everything. The fall disrupted everything. And once we're restored back to where we intended to be, we will once again go back to that day-by-day abiding fellowship with an eternal God forever and ever. This is something that the unsaved will not experience. So for the believer, that experience of life is a whole new experience that uh, we will participate in for all eternity. He will be your God, and you will be his people. Now, also we would say this will be a resurrection minus death. We think that's the nature of resurrection, right? Uh, here, verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death. No more death. There's no fall again. God will not, uh, individuals will have no capacity to go back to what Adam did. It's not God restoring us back to what Adam had before the fall. It's giving us much more. A body that has no capacity to sin. We will be minus the sin nature. And therefore, we cannot repeat what Adam repeat Adam did before the fall. We will have a body that's incapable of sinning, but only capable of righteousness throughout eternity. And therefore, no more corruption, no more inherited old sin nature, which brings physical death. We will be minus that. And so that resurrection will be minus death. It also will be minus sorrow. Look at Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. No more sorrow, no more tears, no more crying. The pain of this former life, the disappointments, the losses, the grief will be gone throughout eternity. And what experience that will be. Never to grieve again. Never to weep again. And therefore, minus crying, we saw. And then, how about this? I love this. A resurrection minus pain. Minus pain. Revelation 21, verse 4. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And this body, that's a body of sin, experiences decay. Experiences aches and pains. And even suffering and disappointments and discouragements and depression at times and all the things associated with this life. But in eternity, it would be my, our resurrection body will be minus that. No more pain. No more heart conditions. No more tiredness. No more weariness. That will be gone. A body minus pain. So that, to me, is a resurrection of life. And those are only some of the elements that we'll experience in that eternal state for the born-again believer. Now, that resurrection class of life includes several resurrections. First of all, the resurrection of Christ for the church. We call this the pre-trib rapture. That's a summary term of that event. Rapture itself refers to what happens to living believers at Christ's return. What we call the preacher rapture, the event in a theological sense that we will not go through as members of the church age one day of that seven year tribulation period. We will not experience the seal judgments. We will not experience the bold judgments. We will not experience the trumpet judgments, the thunder judgments. <laughs> we will not come into judgment. Uh, we will be caught up before that day begins. And Paul certainly. Uh, demonstrates that in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're not appointed the wrath, verse 10, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, 
that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. But a resurrection is mentioned in that coming of Christ for the church. He speaks of those who are dead in Christ. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. They will come to life. Now, it's very interesting. He describes who these individuals are. They are in Christ. Only born-again believers in the church age, from the day of Pentecost to the rapture, are described as being in Christ. These are not Old Testament saints. These are not tribulation martyrs. These are church age believers. They're defined as being in Christ. And therefore, that's a positional term by the baptism ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're in Christ when we believe. 1 Corinthians 15.23, another great resurrection chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23. He speaks of here the uh, general order of resurrections. He says, each one in his own togma. The word order in the Greek means a military unit. Groups of soldiers together, a unit. And he says, there are several units of resurrections. There are several groups that will be resurrected. It's not all one group. Each one in his own order. Uh, so that's a very important Greek word there, order. Christ the first fruits, of course, he's the one, first one to rise from the dead, never to die again. Afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, that will be coming for the church. Once again, he is not mentioning every single resurrection in this passage. That's not his purpose. He's focusing on specifically the resurrection for church age believers. That is his focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And then the kingdom comes and, and, and uh, so forth. But we won't get into the details of that passage here. We taught that before. But there, needless to say, there will be a resurrection. Each one in his own order. Verse 21 says this, For by man came death, Adam. By man came also resurrection of the dead, Christ. Great contrast there. Then we had the resurrection of Old Testament saints after the tribulation. And we have the timing of that, by the way, in a couple passages in Daniel chapter 12. What about those before the church age? Um, those who lived and died before the church age as righteous, we call them Old Testament saints, whether Jew or Gentile, they will be resurrected after the seven-year tribulation. Let's look at Daniel, the book of Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. I think that's the archangel assigned to the nation Israel. Michael is a guardian angel assigned to that nation. Um, And he's gone to uh, make sure that the children of Israel are not annihilated (laughs) during the tribulation. Uh, There shall be a time of trouble such as was never since there was a nation even to that time. That's called the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Notice the last phrase here, or sentence of this verse, next to the last sentence, and at that time your people shall be delivered. Who's your people? Who's Daniel's people? The Jews. And that will occur when? After that three and a half year tribulation, after the seven year tribulation. The timing is clear there. Everyone who is found written in the book. So, This is very clear that at that time, notice verse 2, many who are asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. There's that category there, right? And others, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, he doesn't say at that same time that resurrection will occur. He's simply classifying the resurrections together. Others... They will, a thousand, seven years later, the unsaved dead, will be resurrected to contempt. So Daniel 12.2 is in essence saying almost identical language of what John is saying about the two categories of resurrections. Some to life and others to shame or contempt, judgment. Now Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, also is in reference to that resurrection of Old Testament saints. 
So this doctrine is taught in the Old Testament. Not Resurrection is not simply a New Testament doctrine. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall wake. Arise and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. The earth shall cast out the dead. Think about that. The earth shall cast out the dead. Now, before that period of time, notice in verse 20, there's the period of indignation, which is a tribulation period. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as for, for, for a moment until the indignation, that's a term for the tribulation period, is over. Notice here. The Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And that's that tribulation. But at that time, after that indignation, those who are in the earth will awake. They'll be resurrected. So the timing there is also after the tribulation period. Now, what about um, tribulation saints? When will they be resurrected? Well, Revelation 20 verse 4 tells us that. Those who are saved during that tribulation and die as martyrs for their faith, they will experience a resurrection as well. Revelation 20 verse 4, And I saw thrones of day that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. Now if you study the book of Revelation, you know who these individuals are. At the midpoint, Antichrist demands world worship, no buying or selling, and uh, there'll be those individuals who refuse the mark of the beast, beheaded. So these are tribulation martyrs. Very specific, not church age believers, tribulation martyrs. And notice here, they were they were beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast. Very clear. Only, only the Antichrist will rise after the church is gone during that period of time. So they did not worship the beast or his image. They did not receive his mark, the 666, on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived. Live is a term for resurrection. They came to life. They lived. And then they reigned with Christ, reward, for a thousand years. So, these individuals were also raised after that tribulation period during that time. What about millennial believers? Well, we assume those who come to faith in the millennium will experience a transformation before the eternal state. Uh, flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit in corruption. I assume by the eternal state all will have a resurrected bodies. Um, we had the resurrection of millennial believers after the millennium. No scripture, though, but this is certainly implied. I don't have any verse to give you on that, but certainly by implication. So at least we have four different resurrections and under the category resurrection class of life. Now, there's one really resurrection under that second category, resurrection class of judgment, and that's the great white throne judgment. All unsaved dead will be resurrected from Adam forward. And I'll, I'll include Adam in that picture. I think Adam is a believer, but uh, from Adam afterward, all who are unbelievers will be resurrected at this time. Revelation chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. But the rest of the dead did not live again until a thousand years were finished. Notice two separate resurrections here. One before the millennial and at least one afterwards thousand years later this is the first resurrection blessed is the holy is he who has part in the first resurrection on such the second death hath no power so the rest of the dead will be resurrected after the thousand years is over and he defines it further by the way in verses 11 and 12 Revelation 20:11 and I saw a great white throne and then the person who sat on it whose face the earth and the heaven fled away there was found no place for them destruction of the heavens and the earth before that period of time I saw the dead small and great stand before God so these are standing before God because they are resurrected the resurrection is described in verse 13 the sea gave up the dead that's a resurrection who were in it death and Hades 
Hades would be the place where the soul goes, and death, the grave, the body. There's resurrection. Death and Hades delivered up the dead. That's resurrection. And uh, they were judged, each one according to his work. So this is after the thousand-year kingdom. Great white throne judgment. Now, I think I have a chart here we're going to deal with later on those resurrections. Uh, I'll show you that later, but I want to deal with annihilationism. Now, annihilationism, they love to use this passage to try to teach that, well, since the resurrection for believers is called a resurrection life, the one for the unbelievers, therefore, must not deal with living eternally. Therefore, they will be annihilated. They try to jump from that to say that, well, that proves that the they will be annihilated. And that's not the case. Eternal life means, and here's their argument, this is from the annihilationist argument, the one who believes, well, there's going to, unsaved will be thrown into hell and simply burn up. Um, this is what they say. Eternal life means unending physical immortality or existence. Since only the righteous receive eternal life at the resurrection, the wicked must pass into non-existence. Otherwise, they would be recipients of eternal life. And that's their argument. Now, how do you answer that? Well, the answer is, eternal life which a righteous receive is a quality of divine life. And that's the difference. Which the wicked never experience. And we list some of those things that they will not experience. The righteous receive this eternal life at regeneration... And do not have to wait for it until the resurrection. We have eternal life. But I think at, the, at our resurrection, when we receive our resurrection bodies, we will enter in our bodies into a full new experience of life throughout eternity. It does not mean unending existence, but eternal well-being. So having eternal life means not only that I will live forever, but I will have eternal well-being with God. It's a quality of life. You can be physically alive and not have a quality of life. But we will have a new experience and quality of life that the unsaved will not experience. They will live forever, yes, in their resurrected bodies. But they will not experience what we will experience in our resurrected bodies. And so there's a distinction here. Now, let's deal with uh, Daniel 12. This is a passage that some people try to use to teach one general resurrection and one general judgment. That's also what they try to do here in John 5. We'll see this resurrection of saved and lost is at the same time. They try to impose that on Daniel 12, 2 and 3 as well. They say, we'll see all saved and lost will be resurrected together at the end of human history. And the judge will say, you go to heaven, you go to hell, and that's it. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, here, Daniel 12, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life. First category, as we saw in John. And then, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Resurrection of judgment. Now, New American Standard has this translation. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, those to everlasting life, but the others... The rest of the sleepers who do not awake at that time, I would add, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. See, So he separates the others, the ones who do not wake. They will be resurrected, though, at, uh, to disgrace and everlasting judgment or contempt. So he's really separating two categories. He's not saying they are resurrected at the same time. I think it's very distinct. Um, many Old Testament saints and tribulation martyrs uh, will be resurrected. Those will be those ones who will be resurrected. Many. That's why I said many of those who are in the dust of the earth will awake. He's referring to specific individuals. Others will be the unsaved dead at the great white throne judgment. And that will be after the millennial kingdom. Now, um, they're going to fast forward this, show you this chart here. Then, therefore, reviewing what we have gone over before, two categories or classes of resurrection. Those who are resurrected to experience the fullness of eternal life begins with the coming of Christ for the church. 
and that's called the rapture. Those who are Christ at his coming. And this is the time when the church age believers are resurrected. And let's see if we can zoom in on our little chart. And we're dealing with this period of time. We live in the church age and the next event is Christ's return for the church in the clouds. And those who are alive will be caught up. And those who have died will be resurrected. Then we have a seven-year tribulation period that will occur when God pours out his wrath upon the unbelieving world. We have Christ who returns to the earth at his second coming, seven years later, after that tribulation. And at that time, we have Old Testament saints will be resurrected and tribulation saints will be resurrected as well. And I have both of those listed there. Those two individual groups of individuals we saw in Daniel 12 and Revelation chapter 20. Then we have here the unsaved dead. There's a future perfect kingdom that Christ will rule over. He will reign till all enemies are under his feet, as in 1 Thessalonians, um, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, then after that 1,000 year kingdom, the unsaved dead will be resurrected. They will be resurrected right before the eternal state and they will face their divine judge. And those who have rejected the gospel will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Eternal condemnation, eternal torment. But for believers, we will experience the bliss in the new Jerusalem of eternity in our resurrected bodies. So in that sense, we would go, we would have that experience of life throughout all eternity. So those are the resurrections in the scripture. And it's interesting, as we study the judgments in the past, uh, resurrections associated with judgment. It's interesting. You see that a lot of the timing associated with judgments. So they, um, there are some parallels there. So let's stop right there. We'll, we'll deal with uh, this further next week. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we look forward to that day of being caught up if you return today or this moment before we die. Or if we die, Lord, to be resurrected, to be with you forever. Either way, uh, this is a great thing, Father. And uh, we thank you for those here who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And if you haven't placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day and he came down to this earth to take on your sins. On the cross, he paid the penalty for your sins and he offers you eternal life if you simply place your faith in him. Are you sure that if you would die today, you would be with the Lord in heaven? And if you're not, then believe the gospel. Believe the fact that Jesus Christ made that payment for you and he's the one that gives you eternal life not by your goodness or your works, but by simply believing in him for that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Continue to help us to focus and set our mind on things above and not on things below. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.